0: Hey there, Ruby Jones here, the host of 7am. Welcome to The Weekend Read, a podcast where contributors to Schwartz Media's magazine, The Monthly, read their long-form essays. Today on the show, contributing editor to The Monthly, Richard Cook, will be reading his piece from the latest edition. It's called Market of the Apes, NFTs and Digital Art. In it, he explores how the art market has been transformed by NFTs and how artificial intelligence might transform the art itself. To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to the Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Richard, could you start by telling me what it is that made you decide to write this piece?
1: Yeah, so it was seeing AI-generated art on the internet. I'd previously been interested in AI generated writing, which has so far not really been successful. There are books of AI generated writing, which are quite strange and interesting, but you probably wouldn't wanna read one the whole way through. But seeing stuff, especially coming out of Deep Dream, being posted online, I I thought, wow, this, this looks like a kind of style of art that is capturing our moment in time. And I was curious about how it was made and who was making it and what role the machine played and what role the artist played.
0: And Richard, would you mind describing to me where you are as you prepare to read this piece for us?
1: Um, So I'm in in Sydney, Australia, and I haven't seen any art at all in person apart from having a quick look at a show pre-install. I think that's a really common pandemic experience and It's not surprising in a way that art online might pick up that slack a bit, but art online has tended not to really work for all sorts of reasons. And I'm not sure that this works either, but it doesn't work in a much more interesting way.
0: Well, thank you, Richard, and I look forward to hearing the piece.
1: Thanks. Market of the Apes, NFTs and Digital Art. And it starts with a quote from the French novelist Wiesemont and his book Against Nature. For the delight of his spirit and the joy of his eyes, he had desired a few suggestive creations that cast him into an unknown world, revealing to him the contours of new conjectures, agitating the nervous system by the violent deliriums, complicated nightmares, nonchalant or atrocious chimerae, they induced. In April 1965, the Howard Wise Gallery in New York hosted one of its least successful shows. Called Computer Generated Pictures, its title was a compromise between the two men whose work was on show. They were scientists rather than artists and they disagreed about whether the images they had created could be called art. Bela Jules thought they were not art and A. Michael Knoll believed they might be. But they did agree on one inevitability. It was, quote, the day when a computer can draw or paint almost any kind of picture in any one or combination of colours. Invitations to computer generated pictures were printed on coloured IBM punch cards. One went to a New York Times critic who later wrote that the wave of the future crashes significantly at Howard Wise Gallery, but it was low tide. Of the 25 works displayed, some of which might have been made on an etcher sketch none sold. The written material that accompanied computer-generated pictures offered reassurances which sounded empty in the face of market indifference. Artists who feared being automated out of existence might instead find a freedom, quote, unburdened by the tedium of the mechanics. Feeling more inhibited... Executives from the telecom company AT&T tried to cancel the exhibition, fearful that regulators might punish an expensive waste of computing power. Knoll was undeterred, and his experiments became more provocative. He reverse-engineered a Mondrian work and created an algorithmic so-called original Mondrian with a computer. When he showed the results to test subjects, they preferred them to the real thing. It was more soothing Respondents said, more imaginative. Noel, whose programming had made, he said, no attempt to communicate any emotions, was fascinated. He then tried to register an image called Gaussian Quadratic with the Library of Congress Copyright Office, which rejected it. A machine generated it, the library responded, beginning a bureaucratic dialogue about whether or not a computer could be original. Noll explained that a human being had written the program that incorporated randomness in order. In his short memoir The Beginnings of Computer Art in the United States, he wrote, "They again refused to register the work, stating that randomness was not acceptable." I finally explained that although the numbers generated by the program appeared random to humans, the algorithm generating them was perfectly mathematical and not random at all. The copyright was finally accepted. Gaussian Quadratic, became perhaps the first known registered piece of copyrighted art produced with a digital computer. The work lasted decades as a novelty, almost a gimmick, rather than a harbinger. Thirty years after its creation, its creator had still not noticed any major museum of modern art giving much attention to computer art. Mostly, he thought, because it was not very good. Instead, it has taken almost 70 years for the possibilities Noel and explored to reach fruition. A lot of computer art is still not very good. Nevertheless, their central question, will artists be emancipated or replaced by digital technology, has become a much more urgent consideration. And like so many of the art world's crises, this one is finding expression at the auction house. Christie's has handled art made with computers an art made by computers for some time but in march 2021 it sold its first ever piece that exists on computers and nowhere else this purely digital artwork is called every day's the first 5000 days and the artist responsible calls himself beeple it was minted exclusively for christies as a non-fungible token or an nft and comprises a collage of 5000 drawings that Beeple posted online one per day for 13 and a half years. Everydays was part of Christie's debut sale of NFTs, the first of its kind by a major auction house. It also marked the first occasion that the 256 year old institution accepted cryptocurrency as payment. The work sold for the equivalent of $69 million, ranking it amongst the most expensive artworks by living artists. High prices for modern art have been tabloid fodder for nearly a century now, but this money for nothing was an irresistible new variation, and the sale launched a flurry of both awed and despondent headlines. Prices like these provoke anxiety, especially when attached to objects that have no corporeal existence. NFT was the Collins Dictionary's word of the year in 2021, And these otherworldly objects are artworks that exist only in the digital realm. Their provenance proved by lines of code on a blockchain. The work is copyable, but the ownership isn't. Some have suggested the copywriting and sale of digital assets was not really new at all. Video art, for example, has been sold in limited editions for decades. Brian Eno dismissed NFTs as artists' own. He said, "Cute little version of financialization." that allowed them to become little capitalist assholes as well. Trevor Jones, a 51-year-old painter from Edinburgh, had more reason for gratitude. Before NFTs, he told The Guardian, he had been borrowing money to pay bills. Afterwards, he made more than $4 million in a single day. The journalist noted that this transition had transformed Jones's bank account, but his status still rested somewhere near anonymity. Much of Jones's work is adorned with cryptocurrency logos and paraphernalia. If these are intended ironically or as a critique, his fans pay it no mind. Contemporary galleries found these paintings objectionable, and instead buyers arrived through online marketplaces such as Nifty Gateway and OpenSea, where speculation is feverish. Combined with a pandemic-induced decline in museum and gallery attendances, this amounted to a reversal of fortunes between traditional and non-traditional art world institutions. In an art review piece titled, Why the Art World Loves to Hate NFT Art, the critic JJ Charlesworth argued that what he called pop cultural baubles had become a viral threat to the established order. What do they mean for institutions? What do they mean for art criticism? After all, Charlesworth wrote, to this critic, Beeples and Grimes' images suck. People himself had described much of his own work as crap. It didn't seem to matter. The eventual owners of Everydays admitted they had not previewed the lot before purchase. If it was crap, it was crap they had never seen. Some critics reached for their Marx, who wrote in Capital that all nations characterised by the capitalist mode of production are periodically seized by fits of giddiness in which they try to accomplish the money making without the mediation of production process. In the same discussion, the philosopher noted that the accumulation, he said, appears in a form that leaps to the eye. There is a sharper, less distant manifestation of this phenomenon, the art market of the 1980s, a time when, as Robert Hughes described in The Shock of the New, an overstressed decade became a bullring of deranged fetishism, stratospheric prices mocked the idea of art as a socially shared medium and threatened to destroy it altogether the art world hughes thought subordinated itself to television and he described its ultra fast change of images its throwaway cool its predilection for banal narrative and its fixation on celebrity artists such as jeff Koons made work that was nasty but not cheap It flaunted its own ephemerality and ran open lines of communication with fashion and street style. There was closer proximity to celebrity and a diminished role for critics. Hughes' own rear guard against a trend that he hated was unsuccessful. Then, as today, the whole hot, gorsh period was buoyed by financial sector exuberance. If NFTs have a Peggy Guggenheim, it might be Paris Hilton, who owns more than 150 digital works, some displayed on screens in her house. She has produced a series of her own, depicting both her dog and herself, in a fairy floss, airbrush style. In August 2021, she discussed NFTs on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. She was invited back for more. And some months later, Fallon purchased an NFT of a cartoon ape minted by the art collective Bored Ape Yacht Club, or BAYC, for 46.8 Ethereum, cryptocurrency then worth around $250,000. Not the first or the most expensive NFTs, BAYC apes may be the most emblematic. Distinct from self-contained NFT works such as everydays, the BAYC is a collection of collectibles, exactly 10,000 cartoon-style portraits programmatically generated at random from a selection of different traits. Accoutrements such as glasses or golden fur are distributed throughout the primates. Each has a predetermined rarity, which increases the value of the ape accordingly. All 10,000 apes sold one day after the project launch in what the New Yorker called, quote, a strange combination of gated online community, stock shareholding group and art appreciation society. Could have added streetwear brand, baseball card company and money laundering service. One of BAYC's anonymous founders, who goes by the name Gargamel, told the interviewer that, we want your bored ape to be your digital identity. And those who own these ape images, Fallon included, frequently use them as social media avatars. BAYC was inspired by an NFT project called CryptoPunks and has in turn spawned its own menagerie of imitators and sub-projects. There are Desperate Ape Wives, the Fat Ape Club the Mutant Ape Yacht Club, along with a host of other copycats producing cartoonish images of pugs, penguins, lions, ducks, whales, and, of course, cats. This ballooning animal kingdom has been compared to the Beanie Baby bubble of the 1990s, where fortune sank on ultimately unsaleable plush toys. But there are outright scams as well as delusions. In late 2021... Both the Baller Ape and Evolved Ape NFT projects, the latter run by a developer known as Evil Ape, suffered multi-million dollar so-called rug pools where their originators disappeared with the money. There have also been numerous thefts. New York gallerist Todd Kramer was the victim of one of the first digital art heists in history when fishing thieves stole $50 million worth of BAYC NFTs. His defeated tweet in the aftermath, which read... All my apes gone has become one of the slogans of a disorientating zeitgeist. Applying art criticism to algorithmically generated apes, stolen or otherwise, might be a kind of category error. Superficially, they sit in a lineage with Keith Haring and Coors at the juncture between art, street art, graffiti, collectibles and graphic design, but then context runs aground. Those artworks were produced by individual human artists, and even the most cynical progenitors of such works still had something to say, even if it boiled down to buy me. Here, it is the medium that makes that demand. As with Knowles' programming, there is no attempt to communicate any emotions, and any feeling a work might produce is an accident, a kind of emotional pareidolia. There is no connoisseurship and no pretense that those buying the apes a part of a liberal humanist effort to preserve the human soul. Noah Davis, the Christie's specialist who has become an impresario and interpreter of digital art markets, believes that NFTs exist in opposition, designed, he says, against the existing art world as an art form that doesn't need a gallery. That suggests that the art lies both within and beyond its electronic superstructure. When more than one trillion copyright images are being created each year, individual works of art have a better chance of being rare than transcendent. The endpoint is a place where the market itself is the gallery, or even a new form of networked, collaborative artwork. It's a phenomenon that seems related to other online communities that revel in deliberate financial irrationality. The Reddit forum Wall Street Bets, where users post so called loss porn of heavy trading deficits and urge each other into a commitment on doomed stocks like GameStop is also an aesthetic collaboration. At their best, these created spaces continue the emphasis on waste and mispurposing found in so much performance art. Works bought and sold without the involvement of any real-life artists deepen the long-standing unease surrounding digital artworks and their artifice. Negative reviews of computer-generated pictures called the show cold and soulless. Both human and algorithmically generated digital art still attract these pejoratives. What distinguishes Beeple's digital imagery from other non-establishment art is the violent erasure of human values inherent in the pictures, Jason Farrago wrote in the New York Times. He added that crypto fans were happy to see them go. That doesn't seem so distinguishing to me futurism was a whole gospel of anti-humanism, and Paul Virilio was so incensed by Stellark's Man Becomes Machine installations, he likened them to Nazism. But the sheer volume of digital works exists on a scale that is counter-romantic. Whether image number 4,999 of a series is moving or well-executed becomes immaterial. The viewer never made it that far. Perhaps the most groundbreaking modes of digital art embrace this proliferation instead of resisting it. Amid the postmodern retreads and reinventions of 1980s Soho, Robert Hughes found a tired deja vu born of what he called the total availability of all images. This abundance was only relative. Hughes had seldom seen colour reproductions of old masters before leaving Australia, but the comprehensive computerised archives of our own era offer themselves as a medium instead of an inspiration. These images are machine-readable and subject to the deep learning at the core of contemporary artificial intelligence. Computers trained on these enormous banks of imagery can function in ways that recall thinking or dreaming, and just as they can recognise faces or make rudimentary medical diagnoses, they can also make art. In another of A. Michael Knowles's less well-known pieces of writing called The digital computer as a creative medium, written in 1967, the scientist imagined computers acting as an artist's assistant or creative partner. Both a tool and a medium, they could be used to produce wholly new art forms and possibly new aesthetic experiences, he thought. If originality came from the unpredictable, a machine that, quote, actively takes over some of the artist's creative search, It suggests him syntheses that he may or may not accept. It possesses at least some of the external attributes of creativity. This was a prescient guess at how AI technologies would come to be used. Suk-Wen Chung, an artist in residence at Bell Labs, Knowles' former employer, has described her work as, quote, mark-making in collaboration with a robot. This artistic movement is sometimes called network art or neural art, One artist in residence at the Google Cultural Institute in Paris calls himself a neurographer. And that's because of the nature of the artificial intelligences preferred. Many practitioners use computers that function like a neural network, modelled on a brain. In particular, artists favour a form of artificial intelligence called generative adversarial networks, or GANs. GANs use two intelligences working in tandem – One generates images and one classifies them, a relationship that might be likened to an artist and a critic. In 2015, Google released a project called Deep Dream, which aimed to visualise what a deep neural network was seeing as it functioned. It has since become a favourite of AI artists and the imagery it creates, much of it in an over-determined psychedelic style, has been loosely collected into an artistic movement called Inceptionism. Inceptionist works are vivid and fractal, and the deep dream AI tends to see animal faces everywhere, even on top of other animal faces. Tonally, they can be nightmarish and sinister. The first work produced by generative adversarial networks was a serendipitous creation, the internet titled Nightmare Beast, asked to visualise Dumbbell's Deep Dream attached disembodied arms to each one. The human artists who work with these tools have tamed some of these uncanny effects. The Turkish new media artist, Rafik Anadol, who happened to be a Google artist-in-residence present for the release of Deep Dream, has since applied similar techniques in public artworks all over the world. At the end of 2021, he held a show at New York's MoMA called Unsupervised, which was, quote, an exhibition of works created by training an artificial intelligence model with the public metadata of the Museum of Modern Art's collection. Aside from its presence in hallowed institutions, neural network art also has a lively grassroots scene. It is cheap to produce and easy to learn, which makes it democratic and frees a creative impulse from the strictures of craft. The musician and producer Vito James Genovese reinvented himself as a deep dream artist, producing a steady stream of work shown in as many as three online exhibitions a month. Each show is dedicated to art historical styles of his own invention. They have suggestive names, Ultra Deco, Rainbow Doom and Century Style, and at their best suggest a route to new artistic territory like Giorgio de Chirico's Arcade Paintings. Ultra Deco imagines what the artists of the 1920s might make with digital tools. The availability of digital colour saturation would be a major marvel for those early 20th century Art Deco guys, I think, said Genovese. And he takes a limitless pleasure in working with the controls of his AI. He finds source imagery from old film clips or found footage and finesses the textual prompts that tell the machine how to think. They can be technical and descriptive, things like teal-purple-silver-colour-schemes-colon-50 dash-palm-tree-vacation-beach-paradise-colon-50, for example. But sometimes the prompts become poetics. Genversi says that the fidelity of AI is what interests him so much. How one powerful prompt can bring with it the feeling like some singular artist is replicating the same general feeling, yet it's all just the work of words and algorithms. The analogy Genovese likes to apply is of synthesised music, specifically the experimental form that began in earnest in the 1960s, before commercial synthesisers broke into the mainstream. It often sounded cheesy or artificial before it changed the sound of music permanently. The closest parallel between the machine's role in both music and art is the ability to generate nearly anything synthetically. Up close, Genovese says, the machine's personality feels unmechanical. Quote, the inferences and ideas that get drawn out from input images especially are quite mesmerising. The way the AI understands is almost intimidating. The artist Casey Riaz, author of Making Pictures with Generative Adversarial Networks, describes this as coaxing images from what he calls latent space and affirms that it's still an artistic process. He compares curating the images from which an AI learns with a photographer's practice, choosing the best marriage between equipment, subjects and conditions. At each step, the artist must make decisions and the mystery of the computer's function makes this process organic and still humane. Still, an AI artist is not a photographer, and Reyes is honest about the nagging questions of intent and purpose and how both critics and audiences might respond to them. Mike Pepe, who writes about art and technology, has tried to imagine the critic's role in the AI art world. He says that a critic writing about Deep Dream could, for example, point to the narrowness in its selection of images of cats and dogs and how the end product suffered as a result. The critic might pass and compare output, but that role would, he says, treat the artist-engineer as a curator, as someone whose primary work is the selection of images. This is because the true moment of machine creativity is illegible to humans. If that weren't true, there would be nothing artificial about its intelligence. In her own work, the curator Nora N. Khan has imagined AI art as an ethical practice that could undermine the surveillance regime of digital capitalism, addressing and subverting its algorithmic regimes. Once, when Genovese fed his AI a random waterscape image, he twinned it with the prompt seaside structure by nighttime ocean. He was imagining a bridge. Instead, the computer generated giant abstract sculptures out near the sea and added a rural shoreline in the foreground. Looking closer, Genovese saw something that looked like strips of tilled farmland and, on the horizon, the twinkling of a city skyline, elements that existed only in the mind's eye of a machine.
0: can read Richard Cook's piece in the latest issue of The Monthly.